This is quite the turning point in Acts, isn't it? If you've been here in previous weeks, as we've been making our way through the book of Acts, you'll see that there has just been a string of successes for this burgeoning Jesus movement in Jerusalem. They begin by, they begin in confusion. Jesus has been raised from the dead and they meet Jesus and Jesus says, go and wait for the Holy Spirit to come on you and then he disappears into heaven. So they go home and they pray until the Holy Spirit comes on them. And then Peter gives the first, you know, after Jesus, you know, after Jesus has ascended, the first Christian sermon. And thousands of people decide at that point that they want to follow Jesus. And then Peter heals a beggar at the entrance to the temple. And the religious leaders hear about this, and they call Peter and John before them. They say, what do you think you're doing? And Peter says, well, we think we're healing this guy. But if you're concerned about the fact that we're telling people about Jesus, you know, he is the truth. And we got to talk. We can't be quiet about this. And the religious leaders say, there's nothing we can do at the moment because they're so popular So they say, hey, just stop it and get out of here. So that's that's their uh, approach. Then we see that there is an incident in the church itself where people try and, and basically get all the glory for following Jesus without actually following Jesus. Ananias and Sapphira. They have a piece of property, they sell it, and they say, we're going to give you all the money from the sale of this property, but they only give a portion of it. And Peter says, why are you lying to God? Because that's what you're doing. And Ananias and then his wife Sapphira drop down dead in front of them. And God protects his church in this way. Now, obviously, that's kind of a hard story. You might want to hear more of the sermon before you decide whether that was a good or a bad thing. But I'm going to leave it there because that's not our sermon for this morning. And then you have uh, another great, uh, another great uh, healing and the apostles telling everyone about Jesus. And once again, the uh, religious leaders bring the apostles in, in front of them. They said, we told you to stop it. You need to really stop this now. And they beat them up and they send them home. And the apostles, far from being discouraged, are actually encouraged by what they've encountered. They go home rejoicing because they say, now we are more like Jesus than we were before. People are responding to us in the way they responded to Jesus. And finally, we come to Stephen. And uh, you caught the end of the story there. I didn't have uh, George read the whole thing for us because it's almost two chapters long. And that was a long time to sit and listen, and it's a long time to stand up and read. So I'm going to walk us through the story here this morning. You have Stephen. Stephen has just been chosen by the church as a man who is particularly singled out by the Holy Spirit as someone God wants to use. And Stephen was put in charge, along with six others, of the ministry to the the widows of the people who came from outside of Jerusalem, because they had been being neglected in the daily distribution of food. Stephen's been given this responsibility. But we, we hear more about Stephen than these other six. It says, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. 
Uh, it's interesting that someone who the apostles had said, it's not right for us to give up the ministry of the word, to wait tables. The man they choose to wait the tables is also the man who does miracles and who argues convincingly with the people who don't know Jesus yet. And it says opposition arose from members of the synagogue of the freedmen. So from, from people just like Stephen, they've come from outside of Jerusalem. They are the Diaspora Jews, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, and they began to argue with Stephen. But they couldn't stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Get that? Stephen is winning every argument. Are there any people out there who would love the Holy Spirit to enable them to win any, every argument? Wouldn't that be nice? There's some hands up in the back. And let me just tell you, like, I, I'm not just doing this to reach out to you. I want that too. I want, I would love to be able to win every argument because it feels bad to lose arguments, doesn't it? And as a matter of fact, uh, when we are sharing our faith with people, it feels like we have to win those arguments, doesn't it? We have to convince people that, well, God really did make the world. There really is a God out there. Jesus really is his son. We feel like I, I have to be able to convince everyone of this. And Stephen can. Stephen wins every argument. But let me tell you something. There are people out there today by the Holy Spirit or not, who can win every argument. But that doesn't always make them right, does it? See, that's the thing that I found when I'm arguing, is that sometimes it becomes more about winning than about being right. More about people perceiving that I am right than about whether or not I'm actually right. I have found myself occasionally arguing with someone. I'm like, I, I'm starting to think that what I'm saying is not true, but I am not giving this up. <laughs> You're laughing out there, so I think you know what I'm talking about. You've experienced that as well. See, God is not primarily interested in having people who can win arguments. Let me tell you why. It's not that you know, we can't prove certain things about our faith. It's not that there aren't good arguments to have. It's that winning the argument doesn't always get you closer to the truth. Stephen, he's arguing with these people, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as they spoke. So did they change their minds? No. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Because they want to win the argument. And I'd imagine they wanted to win the argument for a number of reasons. Maybe uh, some of the most important reasons would be they don't want to be embarrassed in front of everybody else. But it's, it's humiliating to lose an argument in front of an audience. That's why when people get together and they have debates in front of a, a big audience, I'm skeptical that much good is really being accomplished there. Because people care more about winning often than they do about actually getting to the truth. I don't know if you care whether or not there are presidential debates in 2024, but it looks like the Republicans don't want to enter into them. And I got to tell you, a part of me is sympathetic to that. Not because I am pro-Republican or pro-Democrat, but because I'm just not sure that they're accomplishing a lot. Because it becomes about how do we say, you know, if, if you follow up you know, on those debates a lot of the time, what do the pundits say? Well, it depends on which network they work for, right? Argument doesn't always get us where we want to go. 
So these guys, they're, they're, they don't want to be humiliated. They don't want to be embarrassed. They want to be perceived as winning the argument. But I think they also desperately want what Stephen is saying to not be true. They want it so much that they're willing to compromise the truth in order to come out ahead. So they stir up the people and they bring a charge against Stephen. And ultimately, the charge that they bring against Stephen is we have heard him say, chapter 6, verse 14, that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, the temple, and change the customs Moses handed down to us. And if you want to get some Jews worked up in the ancient world, these are the charges to bring. Because they touch on the core of their identity. The temple is the special place, the unique place where they meet God. And so if Jesus wants to tear down the temple, he wants to destroy the people's relationship with God. And that's what Stephen is saying. This this is the charge. And then the customs Moses handed down to us. That's how we stay on God's good side. By keeping the law, the customs that Moses handed down to us. So Stephen is saying that Jesus is a guy who wants to get rid of our relationship with God and make God as angry with us as he possibly could be. They're saying, you think things are bad now with the Romans just down the street. Wait until Stephen and Jesus get their way. Things will be much, much worse because God will fully abandon us at that point. Then there's this interesting statement. Here's the charge, verse 14. Then in verse 15, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. There is some serious cognitive dissonance going on, isn't there? Stephen looks like, he feels like, he sounds like he is delivering God's message to God's people, and yet the people refuse to receive it. Why? I mean, don't we want to know this today? Wouldn't you like the magic bullet, right, so to speak, figuratively, of course, so you can speak to your friends and your neighbors and your family about Jesus, and you win every argument, and they have no choice at the end of the day but to follow Jesus. Stephen, if anyone has that that magic bullet, it's Stephen. Not only does he win every argument, but he looks like an angel. Everyone's looking at him, and they're seeing something divine being communicated through him. So the high priest asks Stephen, are these charges true? And Stephen now gives one of the great sermons in Christian history. And I'm just going to summarize it for us. He starts, and he says, we all are children of Abraham. We are followers of Abraham, and we believe that God has blessed us through Abraham. But what, what exactly happened in Abraham's life, Stephen says? Well, he says that he lived in one place, and when his father died, God called him to a new place. He took him away from everything that was familiar and comfortable and sent him to a place that was unfamiliar and dangerous. And he said, I'm going to give you this place. And then when Abraham got there, what did God do? He said, why don't you leave that place for a while? It's not yours yet. It'll be your children someday. I want you to hold that in your mind for a moment. And then he tells the story of Joseph. He says that God, uh, his brothers sold him as a slave into Egypt, but God was with him. 
and he rescued him from all his troubles. Sounds good. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Pharaoh made him ruler over all Egypt and all his palace. And then there was a famine. And Joseph's brothers, who were back in Palestine, back in the land that God had promised Abraham and his children, they all came down to Egypt for food. And they met Joseph, and eventually there's some family drama that happens. But after that, you know, Joseph invites his whole family down to Egypt. He says, live here with me, and I will provide for you. And that's what they do, because that was God's provision for them. Tell me, does it feel like Jacob and his family were being called out of a place that was dangerous and scary to a place that was full of comfort? Or does it sound the opposite? Is it like we are being driven out of the place God has promised to us? We're going to Egypt, which is not a friendly land for us, because that's where God is going to take care of us for now. Do you notice a pattern? Abraham, happy and comfortable, God takes him to a place that he promises where it's dangerous and scary, and then he removes him even from there. What, what was Abraham living by? The New Testament answers the question for us. But if you know it, tell me right now. When Abraham went out of the place where he was comfortable and he went somewhere else because God had promised him something, what was he living by? Faith. God bless you all. I'm so glad. It's living by faith. When Joseph and his family went down to Egypt, they never planned that. Joseph's brothers sold them into slavery because they hated him so much, but God reunited them. What were they living by when they left the land God had promised them and went to Egypt? Faith. Good. And then he tells the story of Moses. The people of Israel are still in Egypt. They were there for 400 years, and a pharaoh came who had no idea who Joseph was, and he enslaved all of the people of Israel's, all the people of Israel. Not only did he enslave them, but when they had children, he forced them to expose them, to abandon them out in nature so they would die, because Pharaoh was afraid of the power of the people of Egypt. They were too numerous. It was a bad situation. And Moses was born into this. And somehow he was rescued when he was exposed. He was brought into the palace of Pharaoh and trained by Pharaoh. And eventually, Moses, if you've watched the movie, right, <laughs> Moses finds out who he is. I don't actually know if Moses didn't know or if he knew all the time that he was a Hebrew. Nobody does. But he decided to go visit his own people, the Israelites. And he saw them being mistreated, and he stood up and he defended one, and he killed the Egyptian who was mistreating him. And then the people of Israel rejected Moses. Moses saw someone else, and they said, Oh, are you going to kill me like you killed that Egyptian? Moses ran off into the wilderness, and he lived there for a while. And he met God in the wilderness, in the burning bush. I'm the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. And the Lord sent him to Pharaoh. And what was he going to tell Pharaoh? You know from the movie, right? Let my people go. That's right. Ramesses! I can't do Charlton Heston very well. Let my people go. And then God led the people out of Egypt 
Pharaoh was the most powerful monarch in the region, maybe the most powerful force anyone there would have been aware of at the time. And God overcame him with ten plagues. And the people of Egypt left, or the people of Israel left Egypt. When the army pursued, they crossed the sea on dry ground because God separated it for them through Moses. And then they came all the way to Mount Sinai. And there at Mount Sinai, God made a covenant with the people. I will be your God. You will be my people. Here is the law that you'll keep to keep you within, safe within the bounds of that covenant. And then what happened? Our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. Get the thrust of the story so far? Abraham lived by faith by giving up everything that was familiar so that he could follow God. Joseph lived by faith. He had everything that was familiar torn away from him, and yet God was there. And Moses came along, and he lived by faith, leading the people of Israel out into the wilderness. And then when Moses asked the people of Israel to live by faith and obeying God's law, what did they do? They turned in their hearts back to Egypt because it was familiar. And what was familiar seemed safe. Even if it was slavery, what was familiar seemed safe. And see, this is the message that Stephen is giving to these people who are losing every argument with him. And then accusing him and saying that you, Jesus wants to destroy the temple. Jesus wants to get rid of Moses. Stephen is saying, Jesus wants you to live by faith like your ancestor Abraham, like your ancestor Joseph, like your ancestor Moses. And you're standing here and you think, you think that you're like Moses because you keep his law. But you're not. Because you're holding on to his law just because it's familiar and because it's safe. And folks, how easy It is to be like these people. God's not giving us this example so that we can say, you know, oh, look at how dumb they were. If only they'd listened to Stephen. He wins every argument. Come on, just turn around and follow Jesus. But what they're really doing is they're saying, if we have to follow Jesus, we got to live by faith. We're not in control. We're not in charge. We don't know where he's going to take us. We don't know what it's going to look like. But as for following Moses, we know exactly what that looks like. And we're okay with that. And Stephen is saying to them, Moses and the temple, they, have, they were symbols. They were, they were realities that were supposed to point on toward God. But you've stopped with the symbols themselves. You have loved the temple, but not the God who lives in the temple. You've loved the law, but not the lawgiver. Folks, We've got the Bible, and as followers of Jesus Christ, this is the most precious book in the world to us, but we can love the Bible for the wrong reasons. Did you know that? We can love the Bible because it tells us that we ought to do this and not do this instead of understanding that when we live that way in faith, it points us toward Jesus. We can love the boundary markers without loving the one who gave us the boundaries. We can use the Bible. I had a 
I went to a lecture when I was in college uh, where uh, the gentleman giving it said, sometimes as Christians, what we like to do is we like to take all of the facts about God that we can and, and like bind them together into this brick. Like try and this is the brick of orthodoxy and, and the brick of right belief about God and the brick of living well. And then we like to go around smacking people with it as hard as we can. Because that's an easy way to live, Right? It's so much easier to tell people how they're wrong than it is to actually look to the God who is holy and love him. Because if we look to the God who is holy, would we go around starting with everyone and saying, wow, your life's really messed up. Like, let me tell you the seven things you need to do to fix your life. Or would we go around saying, Jesus loves messed up people like you and me. Let's, let's go meet Jesus. Let's go to the cross together. Let's let him set us free. Aren't we happier often fighting the culture wars than we are really following Jesus? Aren't we more concerned with, you know, uh, with whether the law was just or whether there's prayer in schools or whether we can get, you know, pray in school around the flagpole on the National Day of Prayer or, or whether, you know, uh, are the right view of marriage is ensconced in the law? Aren't we sometimes concerned about those things not because we're really concerned about pleasing God, but because we want a world that is familiar and safe for us? like those people of Israel. God, whatever you do, please do not ask me to live in a society that is so hostile to your word and be a light in that place. Let's get the society right, and then we'll get the rebellious people. You know, we'll either toss them in jail or they'll come to church, and either way it'll be great because they won't be my problem anymore. See, I'm not saying that the culture wars don't matter in any way, shape, or form. I'm not saying that the, the whether or not our laws are just or right or true doesn't matter. I'm saying that we got to get it in the right order. It has to be living by faith in Jesus Christ and looking like Jesus Christ before it's about winning every argument. And Stephen knows that. Stephen is able to win every argument by the power of the Holy Spirit. But let me ask you, did the people in the crowd... Turn to Jesus that day. Let's keep reading. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, when he, they heard Stephen essentially saying, I'm the orthodox one here. I'm the one who is living by faith. I understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. We're not going to destroy the temple because it doesn't matter. We're not going to destroy the temple at all. We're just going to say the new temple is here. We're going to go there instead. We're going to go to Jesus. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So he told them about how they were wrong not to win the argument, but to say, would you give up those things and look to Jesus instead? And then when he saw heaven opened in front of him, what did he say? What did he say to the crowd that was being worked up? Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. 
that was not a safe thing to say. It's not a safe thing to say because that's exactly what he's on trial for in the first place. Do you believe in Jesus or not? But also because the crowd wasn't listening. I know it because it says in verse 57 at this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices. They all ran at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. What is that image like? Covering your ears, yelling at the top of your lungs. Who does that? Children. Are these people thinking rationally at this point? Was it about the argument? Were they, were they actually sitting down and saying, you know, let's see, let's see who comes out on top. That's the one I'm going to follow. Were they saying, let's find the truth of the matter here? No. I'm reminded of... Jesus' parable of the sower. Do you remember this one? We had a song when I was in middle school. You know, the word of God is like little bitty seeds scattered all around. Some on the road, some in the weeds, but everywhere you look, you got little bitty seeds. Jesus is saying, when you share the gospel with people, it's like tossing seed. And some of that seed is going to land on rocky ground, some of it will land uh, in the weeds, some of it will land on the road, and some of it will land in good soil. And each seed will grow based on the soil in which it's planted. So that's what's happening here for Stephen. This wasn't good, healthy soil that would receive the seed and it would grow and yield so much more than anyone had imagined was possible. This is rocky ground. This is on the road. This is where the thorns are growing. None of that seed is going to produce. Now, Jesus didn't tell that parable so that we would look around and we would see like, oh, you know, I'm pretty sure that that person is rocky soil. Or, oh, no, that person seems like, like good soil. I think there's, there's a little bit of that at play here. Recognize the audience that you're speaking to and tailor the message accordingly. Because let me tell you, God's word never returns empty. When we share the gospel with somebody, no matter how good or how bad a job that we did, it's going to reveal something in that person's heart. It's going to reveal the sort of soil that's already there. And one day when we stand before the Lord, no one will be able to say, but, but I didn't know, but nobody told me. God will respond, you had every opportunity. Every opportunity. And God will be shown to be just. Now, that's uh, when I started here at this church and before I knew any of you. One of the things I prayed is, hey, God, don't give me a ministry in rocky soil you know, or in, you know, in thorns and all of it. And I think that's okay. I don't think that God was like, what a stupid you know, request. You know, <laughs> put me back down. No, because God doesn't change. God gives us good. But I think it's mostly for us. Because I'll tell you what happens when I start the argument with somebody and it doesn't go my way. Or I start the argument and I thought, I, I, you know, I tried as hard as I could, but no hearts were changed today. 
and I feel like a failure. Has anyone been there? Am I the only one who fails? (laughs) Thank you for raising your hands, you brave people. And God says, hey, people aren't responding primarily based on what you've done, but primarily based on what's in their heart. And that's God's business to change hearts. It's God's business to deal with the soil. It's just our business to plant as best as we can in a way that honors God. There are ways we can, we can sow folks that are not very honoring to God. That Christian brick is the main one, right? I'm going to get you with Christianity today. But it's God who's in charge of the result. This is a turning point in the book of Acts. Because where up to this point, seemingly every message was met by mass conversion. This is the first time that the message itself has been met with such hostility that the church is actually physically in danger. Stephen dies. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, which is a polite way of saying he died. Stephen a failure? No, of course not. He accomplished exactly what God sent him out to do that day. And we're still telling Stephen's story 2,000 years later. That's the amazing thing to me. I am positive that at the moment, it was hard to see victory in what Stephen did. But I know that when the Christians looked, even a few years later, when the Christians looked back, they would have said, wow, look at what God has done. Because who else do we meet in this story? As they were dragging Stephen out of the city and stoning him, it says, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And George observed for us that this Saul is going to get a name change really soon. He's going to go by the name Paul. And he's going to write more of the New Testament than anyone else does. More books, at least. I think in length, Luke has the most, but... Paul will be one of the most influential figures in the early church. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. There wasn't maybe a sense of victory. There certainly was, and rightly was, a sense of loss. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Trying to decide exactly where to leave this for us (laughs) right now. But let me just give you a taste of what's coming. Do you remember at the very beginning of Acts, Jesus gives a charge to the apostles. And he says to them, Uh, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
How far has the gospel gone so far? Jerusalem, right? Just Jerusalem. They haven't begun fulfilling the rest of that mandate Jesus gave them in chapter 1. What happens when the church begins to be persecuted in Jerusalem? I'll give you a sneak preview. Acts 8, verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went to Samaria. And when the crowds heard Philip proclaiming the Messiah and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. There was great joy in that city. After Philip goes to Samaria, he meets an Ethiopian on a road. He shares the gospel with him. And he goes back to Ethiopia and takes Jesus with him. Then we come back to Paul, but I don't want to talk about him yet. Peter is called by a Roman centurion, a soldier. And Peter shares the gospel with him. And Cornelius and his whole household, not even Jews, bow down and worship. And they are baptized and they follow Jesus. Jesus. 